Good morning and welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, September 8th. My name is Maddie Love. With me in studio is August Berkshire, and we are excited to be joined in studio also by author and professor Dr. Chester O'Gorman. This is an open conversation. We welcome and encourage listener interaction with your phone calls to 952-946-6205, your emails to radio at mnatheist.org, comment over on the Facebook thread, or tweet us at Atheist Talk. And August, Chester, thanks for joining me in studio. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Maddie. Thanks. You're welcome, Chester. You know, Chester, you and I first met like 10 years ago uh, at Secular Bible Study. Yep, that was the program that we had put together with Minnesota Atheists and Trinity United Methodist Church. That's still going today. Yeah. Wow. I didn't. Re- I didn't realize that that was a thing. That's kind of a cool idea, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Bible is worth studying, right. uh, not for supernatural reasons. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, we'll get into some of that, I'm sure, in this topic. Uh, well, Chester, let's start with. Well, first of all, you've got a, a new book out. Uh, give us the title. The title is called Demythologizing Revelation, a Critical Continuation of Rudolf Bultmann's Project. Okay. And this was your PhD thesis? It was my thesis, yes. Which uh, college? Uh, well, Luther Seminary is where I graduated from under um, Dr. Guillermo Hansen. Okay. So let's, I think, start with the death of God. Um, is At least... God is typically defined as some supernatural being. Can, mm. you, can you talk about that a little? Well, within the death of God tradition, uh, which I work out of as well, um, that's affirmed. But um, stemming from the work of Thomas Altizer in the 60s, um, he kind of founded the movement and he talked about what he understood to be the death of God. And with the death of God comes um, a radical change in the, the Christian's disposition and how they experience their their reality. And it's one that is initially of loss, um, that um, at the same time with that loss opens up your existence to lots of other possibilities. Um, but it can be um, a step towards nihilism and a step towards uncertainty and not knowing what to do if you have that belief initially and certainty uh, about the meaningfulness of existence and then lose that, it's, it's a, it has a profound impact. And um, Yeah, I can yeah. see what you're saying, that if you're a Christian, if you're a good Christian who wants to do good, you know, where there are other kinds, uh, <laughs> if you want to do good in the world and you have a belief in this wonderful, loving God, and then you, you lose that belief in a supernatural uh, figure... But you still have this inclination to do good in the world, and you want to hang on to some good parts of the Bible, but yet um, I can understand this feeling of nihilism. Mm-hmm. It's somehow like life apparently seems meaningless at first when you, when you lose that belief. Did you go through any of that? Absolutely. Because you're, you're an atheist now. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us about that. Um, well, I mean, it's not a disposition I, I've ever really gotten over. Uh, at times, I do feel nihilistic, um, that there isn't this metaphysical uh, certainty that that there is a, a genuine meaning to our lives and that, you know, after we die, we go somewhere more pleasant. Um, and there are times I still – that depresses me. But at the same time, as I illustrate in the book, um, nihilism isn't really um, an option for us 
because we live in a historical existence and we're born into a set of a meanings, a culture that we can't really escape from. So even if we, we, we say, for example, oh, life is meaningless, life around us still continues and we still have problems we have to address. And that kind of brings me back from my head in the clouds and reminds me that I have certain challenges that, um, and commitments and concerns and cares that uh, I want to address. And um, that, that keeps me grounded and reminds me that nihilism, while in some ways liberating, uh, at the same time uh, can be a distraction, I suppose, and that it's not really a genuine, I would say, disposition that we can live out um, unless we just ignore everything around us. Well, to me, it's like even though life is a one-time thing and we can't revisit it and we can't have another one and we can't live forever, it's still worthwhile. And I'm still glad I'm alive rather than absolutely. And I can still make other people's lives. Like I realize I'm just living on the onion skin of a planet hurtling through space. And in the end, (laughs) the heat death of the universe will happen and my life will have have no meaning at the cosmic scale. Yeah, right. But if I make your life miserable or your life better, that in and of itself has meaning. Mm. For you me, know, at least. I think there's a certain benefit to the ego deflation <laughs> that comes with this. When we can't be on such a high horse. And it's a humbling in a good way, I right. think. I found it that way anyway. Uh, me too. Yeah. So uh, God is you know, no longer any sort of supernatural being. But why uh, is an atheist like you still talking about God? What is what is God then? So, with Rudolf, Rudolf Bultmann in the previous century, um, he came up with an idea. I shouldn't say came up with an idea. Um, he felt that the Christian experience or being a Christian has this worldly implications, and that the mythology of it is something of a distraction. So he wouldn't say that the mythology was pointless in ancient times. It it affected people and affected their lives as they understood the mythology and it, it shaped them in certain ways. But in the 20th century and now the 21st century, people just can't believe it. It's impossible to get into the mind of an ancient and really believe as they believed for a lot of people today. So – but for him, there was still a lot of value there. So demythologizing what he saw in scripture as mythology and bringing it back to earth uh, was a way for keeping what was in scripture alive. So for example, you could just say it's about morality or ethics, but it's, it's really more than that. His idea was to have something like um, a Christian ontology. So that's a manner – ontology being a manner of being – um, in in the world, and he wanted to demythologize it so as to make it a living possibility for people today. So things like God, for example, even though he wouldn't say he was an atheist, of course, but things like God, um, they have anthropological significance. They have significance for our lives now when we imagine what God is. And um, for him, he wasn't a death of God theologian. But the experience of revelation, as I interpret it, also has, I would say, real this-worldly significance 
for us. And, you know, that, that brings up a lot of other questions as to what revelation is. But the long and short of it is, in Christian terms, you know, God's something like an idol. So that um, we have to contend with the idols that we have or we experience today. So we may not think of God because we can't believe in God today um, in those ancient terms. But we have uh, substitutes for God. Things like um, um, patriotism. um, Things like sometimes people say nature or the universe is kind of they kind of serve as substitutes of God, um, and those things are endowed with I would say meaning and give meaning to our existence, and they they usually come with a set of rules uh, that we're meant to follow, and those play the role of God in the language that I use, um, or I should say the philosophy I use from Zizek and Jacques Lacan. The formal name of that is Master Signifier or Big Other. And that really is the um, the experience of God, even if you don't call it God. It could be, like I said, United States, patriotism, universe, nature. Um, and those are things we eternally have to, to wrestle with and, and deal with and they create problems for – Do you think that's why so many existence? people like have these – Maybe the like, so great term sacred cows, like you can attack me on anything you want, but I will suffer no criticism of the United States or I'll suffer no criticism of, you know, loving the trees, whatever. Like mm-hmm. it's and that that political ideology or that ideology gets almost like a religious a religious notion. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah. So the the formal the formal analytics or the philosophy of Jacques Lacan and Zizek, who I also use, Slavoj Zizek, the philosopher. Yeah, every human life is usually organized around like these master signifiers, and these master signifiers create a, a body or a network or a matrix of meaning that we we adhere to. It could be as simple as um, white supremacy or um, heteronormativity. Those are norms that we live by, and even if we don't identify a God with them, though all usually in a conservative context, God is the author of heteronormativity, the author of white supremacy, even if they don't put it like that, that's where, that's the master signifier that regulates these things. So the, those set of norms are the norms that we embody and live out. And those are the norms that with the death of God can be overturned. So, in general, and this is a hard question maybe to ask with less than a minute left. Sure. But are all is this always like – is there always a negative connotation sort, sort of with this? There can be. Um, I mean I think you're getting at whether maybe there's a good set of norms yeah, versus like, a bad set. I think so. I think so. And uh, that, that I think takes us into another – another avenue maybe we don't have time <laughs> okay. to no, explore. That's fine. I was just but curious. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a good, you could say a good law and a bad law or a good set of norms and a bad set of norms for sure. All right. Well, we'll jump back into the conversation. Please stay with us for the break. August and I will return with our guest, Dr. O'Gorman. You're listening to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, joined in studio by my co-host, August Berkshire. And in just a moment, we'll return with our guest and author, Dr. Chester O'Gorman. I know you just finished listening to commercials, but I wanted to give my weekly thank you to both Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina for their support of Atheist Talk. We are supported by Cucumbers in Edina, and their buffet is extraordinary. The staff-friendly and the atmosphere perfect for large groups, families, or just maybe two folks that want to chat after a Sunday morning radio broadcast. If you'd like to join with us and advertise on this program and keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. And now, back to Dr. O'Gorman. If you'd like to get involved in the conversation, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, join the Facebook thread, or tweet us over at Atheist Talk. All right, we're going to jump back. Thank you, August. Okay, thank you, Matt. Uh, Now, in the last segment, we were talking about the death of God, death of a supernatural God. So, is the word God kept uh, as a symbol of something, or is God being replaced by other things that we're treating as as godlike? Yeah, that's an excellent question, August. So, with the the philosophical framework that I'm using from Lacan and Zizek, it's a way of interpreting uh, our existence in general. So you could use that method of interpretation to understand the Christian experience as well as you know a secular experience, and understand how you know even secular folk have a similar function similar similarly. Uh, as, say, a religious person. Not, it's not exactly the same because, you know, the different contexts do matter. But, again, they would say, he would say, Zizek would say, um, you know, everyone does operate according to some master signifier, and that master signifier uh, creates a set of norms. So whether you call it God or you call it nation or universe, uh, there's some central signifier that endows a particular community, culture, society with a set of meanings, you know, that we embody and live out of. So for the Christian in particular, using uh, their experience of, you know, revelation of God, it's a way of uh, applying it to their lives and then um, experience a sense of liberation that comes with the death of God. Uh, that takes place differently if you're in a secular context because you don't have those images. You don't have those that language. Um, but I would even say in the context of the Christian experience, those things have to be de- demythologized and applied in, in different ways uh, for that sense of freedom or liberation to take place. So, for example, I would say I, – I say this without fingers crossed um, – and I mean it literally, that the Black Lives Matter movement is, I would say, a contemporary form of church. And that in that Black Lives Matter movement, revelation is there as the, as the person of color. And that the Black, Black Lives Matter movement has coalesced as an organized group, um, church being, you know, the Greek word for assembly, uh, trying to uh, – bring that out into society and um, um, make that, I would say, revelation a living reality so as to free our um, black lives from what we know as white supremacy. So to clarify, <laughs> even though you're equating the Black Lives Matter movement to a church. Not equating, but. You're not, in, you're not insinuating that it's in any way a negative 
like thing or it is a negative thing the way you're using it no 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 i think it's a positive thing okay. i just I, want I thought that should be a clarification exactly. we should make especially with three white folks here in the room talking <laughs> right. about black lives matter we should sure. make sure we're careful well, with their words uh, and i'll get you to clarify this revelation in an actual in a secular way in a very not, positive not sense. not like as in the book it, it is, it, <laughs> no no not it's the book revealing of things that were hidden from us by right. this previous bad paradigm right right, right. that right Right. So within the context of white supremacy, you would say that people of color are from the get-go systematically precluded from being able to participate in, in, in our culture, in our society. So um, revelation um, in that context is the person of color staking the claim that, for example, black lives matter. And that, that, needs, to, that needs to become, I guess you could say a norm, but – bring down a culture of white supremacy. And so in this case, would you call it the the signifier? The master signifier the in that case would be white supremacy. Which is so – which I guess maybe would speaks be to why sometimes these things should be so obvious. Like you shouldn't need to have a master – you shouldn't need to dismantle that master signifier because it makes no sense that it exists to begin with. But it's the importance of, of needing to take it out and change it. and the, the, anyway. To kill it. Right. As you kill God. Do you think belief in God or some kind of master is a natural thing with humans? I think it's a consequence of being uh, linguistic creatures. So um, as I was discussing before uh, with you guys or Maddie in August, uh, you're born into a culture. And this comes from another philosopher, uh, Martin Heidegger. You're thrown into a culture not of your choosing. And you come – you're nurtured into that culture and you come to embody that culture's meanings and norms and those become reality for you like uh, water is to a fish. And when you're young, you can't – you don't have the capacity or ability to question those things. It's only as you mature that uh, – you, or you, as you said, Maddie, live in another culture and see that things can be different that you begin, you begin questioning those things. So I would say it's a, an anthropological condition that uh, we all have to wrestle with unless we just stay completely immersed in our, in our culture and the set of meanings that has been given to us. I think there's a lot of people that would benefit from getting plucked out and put into another culture for a, a time. <laughs> Absolutely. Just to, to understand like you were talking about this master signifier, God, whatever they want to call it, these cultural norms. Mm -hmm. I mean it's – they're your culture norms, sure, but they don't. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean they're right. right. They're not necessarily wrong either. But there are other ways of living your life and other ways of conducting your your mm -hmm. affairs. And now, <clears throat> somewhere I saw you use the term atheist Christianity. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, my background is as a Christian, and I, you know, I studied to be a, a minister, and um, it didn't work out. But. Um, there's a tradition within Christianity, as I referred to earlier, Thomas Altizer, who kind of became the the organizer of um, – or the figurehead of the Death of God movement. And he argued for um, an atheistic Christianity and it's called Death of God Theology. And for him, he explains that an authentic Christian experience includes the death of God so that Christians should be, in a manner of speaking, atheists. So in order to be a good humanistic Christian, you got to get rid of the supernatural God. 
I, I don't know if that's necessary. I mean, I think you could still believe in your miss and be a good person, but, you know, that was his argument. What's, uh, the, defini- what's the difference between an atheistic Christian, with less than a minute to go again, <laughs> and, like, cause for a long time I considered myself a secular Christian in that I celebrated mm-hmm. Christmas and Easter. That's when our family got together is around the Christian holidays, despite not having any religious significance to those holidays. Right. Uh, I mean, for me... I, I, from the get-go, when I came back to Christianity, um, even until now as an atheist, it was the Christ figure, the Jesus figure that's kept me um, interested in Christianity. And not so much God or the, the other hoopla uh, All right. that's in Scripture, but yes. I'm going to ask you a follow-up yes, question to that yes, right yes. after the break. But please stay with us for the break. August and I will return to Atheist Talk with our guest, Dr. O'Gorman. You're listening to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950, KTNF. I'm your host, Mighty Love, in studio with August Berkshire, and we're chatting with author and professor Dr. Chester O'Gorman. If you'd like to chat with us this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, find the thread over on Facebook, or tweet us at Atheist Talk. Before we return to our guests, I wanted to thank our group of dedicated volunteers and the generous donations of you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast. If you're able to help with the donation, please consider doing so at our radio fund page or our Patreon, where you can get extended interviews over at patreon.com slash atheisttalk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. We couldn't do this show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael Davids, and is used with permission. Please note all opinions are of guests and hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the Minnesota Atheist organization. Mischief managed, let's get back to Dr. O'Gorman. Thank you. And I'd like to remind our listeners that we're talking about Chester O'Gorman's new book, Demythologizing Revelation. So much for the plug. Okay. <laughs> um, one sentence you wrote that I, I really like, and I want you to explain. True atheism is an active disposition whose aim is to eternally kill God. What do you mean by that? So as I was previously talking about God being uh, taking different forms, uh, whether you call it God or universe or nature or patriotism, whatever, white supremacy, uh, we're born into a culture with a set of norms that has these master signifiers. So that, that symbol God is something we have to wrestle with uh, in each generation. And if we're going to be true atheists, we – it's our job – to as part of libera- liberating ourselves um, is to kill God. Um, and that still applies to Christians today, I would say, who still u- actively use God as, as that meaning-making device, that master signifier. Um, and I think that's important still today because as we, we see, the, the image God still persists. Um, simple disbelief. If you follow the ideas of Lacan and Zizek, doesn't make it go away because, like I said before, you can still disbelieve or believe that there's any meaning to existence, but we still live a historical reality endowed with meanings that we're conditioned by uh, and we have to live out. So part of becoming free of those things is killing, killing that master signifier or big other or God. That's what I mean by it. Okay. Uh, in the last segment, you talked about starting out uh, studying 
theology? Uh, were you going to be a pastor? Or That's correct. Minister? And um, in the course of that, you became an atheist. And you said what brought you back to Christianity, at least as an idea, was the figure of Christ or Jesus. Right. Uh, can you explain that? And do you have a, is there a difference in your mind between Christ and Jesus? Yeah. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated with the Jesus figure as, you know, illustrated in the Gospels. Um, and even when I came back after college um, to Christianity, it was still the Jesus figure that sort of inspired my interest. And it's always inspired my interest more so than than God, whatever that was. Um so that's what brought me back. That's what's kept me, and that's what continues to motivate me, uh, a lot of my work, I should say. And that there is some truth there that applies generally to to all of us, even if we don't explicitly live out uh, um, a Christian existence or something, or an existence using that language. For me, the difference between Jesus and Christ, you know, Christ means Messiah or King. Uh, it's sort of a generic title. Uh, attributed to Jesus, and um, more specifically, I follow Boltmann uh, in making that distinction. That you know, we have this figure, Jesus, of this guy who you know purportedly lived two thousand years ago, and uh, may not have lived, and um, Christ. So Christ was attributed to him, and I would say Christ. Uh, exists among could exist among uh, does exist among us today as uh, a symbol for revelation. So whoever embodies uh, the point of revelation in the contemporary context is, I would say, a Christ figure. That the Christ figure lives on. Are you okay with taking a phone call? Sure. We've got Jim in Minneapolis on the phone, and your, I think your question is something about the meaning of the word God? Yeah, hi, good morning. It's a good topic. Um, I've, look, when you say certain words to people, images form in their mind. If I say Wonder Woman or Batman, you know what you're thinking of. If you say God, people have this picture of the old man with the beard and the robes and everything. I think we as atheists should stop using the word God as a name and instead use it as a job title. <laughs> so you talk about Greek gods, Roman because in conversation she'll talk about Greek gods, Roman gods, Mexican gods, and then you say God, and everybody's, oh, well, you know, that, that, sets it, that, that word is set apart differently. I certainly think we should be using the name of the Bible God when talking about, when talking about him. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're still operating out of, um, you know, a context, a meaningful context in which that, that, uh, that term has meaning, or, you know, you're talking with other people, even you as an atheist, um, who happen to be Christian or, you know, believe in God of some sort, um, I still think we can, can use that. And it's important to use, use that language. Um, is that kind of what you're getting at? Ba yeah, basically, I'm thinking along the lines of planting seeds. If, you, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're talking to a Christian and you start separating the word God from his or her particular meaning, you at least give that person the idea that maybe, you know, maybe there's another perspective I should be at least looking at. So you're basically putting the word God in a, in a more uh, concrete context. 
Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely important because, I mean, here, the way I'm trying to explain the way God functions, um, it's important to relate people relate to people on their terms. So if you're in a secular context, uh, something like Black Lives Matter, they may not – when I say that Black Lives Matter is a, a contemporary form of church, they wouldn't use that language and I wouldn't expect them to. Um, and I wouldn't use that language. I would say um, at best they're anonymous Christians. Um, but again, they would reject that language, and I'd be totally okay with that. Um, so, in terms of relating to religious people, uh, yeah, I, I would completely agree with you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And, I, and I do think it's true in this conversation we're using uh, words like God and Revelation and Christ uh, in ways that are not typically used in society. Right. Yeah, because we're we're using definitions that are academic definitions more than more than like let's have a discussion with me and uncle fred at thanksgiving dinner you know if we're both if we need to at least agree at the beginning of the conversation when i say god i mean Mm -hmm. this when you say god you mean this right otherwise the conversation ends up going nowhere right right so you're saying christ is uh getting back to what we had before the caller christ is um a title that's right and so we can have modern christs who are revealing having secular Revelation. Mm-hmm. So you could say uh, Martin Luther King was a Christ figure, not for what he said about God, but how he educated us on race relations. Mm-hmm. He brought us those secular revelations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like that, yeah. I mean, I would say in that context, King himself is the revelation. I think it's most it's best explained the best non-religious text i've read on what i'm deeming revelation is uh ralph ellison's invisible man uh the book i'm working on now black lives matter um revelation today uh includes that argument that ralph ellison presents his central figure who's an anonymous figure doesn't have a name it's just invisible man He's explaining the status of blackness in the context of of white supremacist culture. And um, part of what I'm getting at um, with trying to explain what revelation is according to the, the motifs and images from, from the Jesus stories includes that element of visible and invisibility. What does it mean to, to be invisible, literally invisible? And Ralph Ellison explains that as what blackness means in a culture of white supremacy is that you're literally invisible. The language and the meaningful terms and language that exists within a white supremacist culture doesn't include an image of blackness, except what white supremacists designate you. So their own self-designation doesn't exist. They're just tools of white supremacy. So I would say any oppressed group, any group that, um, whether they be transgender, homosexual, person of color, according to the norms to which they're born, they're rendered invisible from the get-go. And... um, being revealed as something other, you render your invisibility visible. You're still invisible in a manner of speaking because you got to operate out of those norms, but you're revealing yourself as something more and not just a tool of whatever set of norms that you're born into. So that's what I mean by revelation. You're revealed to exist even though the set of norms in which you were born tell you you don't exist or you just exist as a pawn or a tool of, of that set of norms. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and a good example of this is how Black Lives Matter has insisted that we name the black people that have been shot. Absolutely. I mean, black people have always been killed by white people. 
But before this recent movement, we didn't have their names. That's right. They were just statistics in the background. We still exactly. focused on the white part. The white part that was happening. Right. Yeah. Well, you could say that started with Rodney King, right? Black black folks have been saying that kind of nonsense has been going on forever. Ida B. And Wells, then, the Red Record. I mean, right. They, and we saw it on video on a national scale, and that changed everything. With cell phones now, you can record everything. We see it. Right. And that's an important part of, I would say, revelation, seeing that oppression. And it feels like – and using the African-American or the black experience as a thing, it's like the – the predominant culture, the signifier – I keep forgetting – dropping that term. The, Master signifier. Yes, needs to be challenged again and again and again because when it comes to like racial equality, we've had these big revelations again mm-hmm. and again and again. And how do you – is it – so does it – how many times does it take to like knock that out of a culture? <laughs> I mean because Christianity, it feels like we've had revelations against – the myth of God mm-hmm. again and again and again as we keep shrinking all the things that we said, well, God is responsible for this. No, actually, that's just basic science. Right. <laughs> like, well, I mean, like I said, it's a perennial problem. It's, it's a, I would say, a human condition um, that we have to wrestle with in, in each generation. And those gods do persist over time. Absolutely. Seems like a certain kind of tribalism. And maybe the only cure is to have a really integrated society where everybody is out and being who they are. You know gay people, you know transgender people, and they're wonderful people, and you know blacks and whites and Hispanics and et cetera, and they're wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly exposed on a daily basis, so you can't pretend otherwise. Right. And then just also people just even have different different beliefs. Like, oh, okay, you believe – like I'm for a pluralistic society as much as I think the world would be better off if nobody believed in a magic god. At the same time, people do and that doesn't necessarily make them bad. It's just – Oh, yeah. There are, there are good Christians. They <laughs> yeah. do exist. Hashtag we, not we, all Christians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're getting into uh, – We have 20 seconds left, August. Okay. I'm sorry. After the break, we will be getting into <laughs> – um, social justice and liberation theology. But for now, welcome. Back. I was going to say, welcome back. <laughs> we'll return to our guest, Dr. Grumman, right after this brief commercial break. I'm Maddie Love in studio with August Berkshire. You're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, joined in studio by August Berkshire, along with author and professor, Dr. Chester Gorman. August, we cut you off at the last break. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, time is what it is. Um, Chester, we're getting into the area already of social justice, so mm-hmm. I want you to talk about uh, liberation theology and social justice. Well, uh in my understanding of how all this works, um, the motif, uh, a lot of the motifs surrounding the notion of revelation have direct implications for uh, social justice um, and liberation theology. I take my own work as providing a, a sort of philosophical basis or justification for um, liberation theology. If you're not familiar with that, um, it just basically said says that God God is the God of the poor and oppressed. So my my book provides philosophical justification for that. And as you've heard me speak before, the way I understand Revelation um, and the meaning of Revelation and, and important motifs related to it, such as visibility, invisibility of Christ, transcendence of Christ. Um, 
though that the Christ figure specifically refers to persons or a person um, who is systematically precluded um, from having his or her or their own existence um, based on the, the culture or set of norms that one is born into. So, again, for example, to draw from sexuality, which psychoanalysis is obsessed, obsessed with, um, the homosexual or the transgender person doesn't really have an existence within um, within that normative framework um, where, you know, you're either male or female and you copulate, copulate with the, the opposite gender. Um, and so the Christ figure in that context would be, could be the homosexual, could be the transgender person um, or any, any variation thereof um, that doesn't fit into, you know, the standard male, female, hetero, heterosexual framework. So the Christ figure is an impressed person who reveals to us their existence? In a manner of speaking, yes. Um, so those norms, you know, the transgender person doesn't exist from the get-go. You're either male or female. And so the transgender person is systematically uh, precluded, not right. just oppressed and – or, uh, yeah, not just oppressed but repressed. Uh, they don't have an existence in the beginning. Their existence has to literally be created. And so that revelation is the formation or um, the appearance of that which shouldn't exist or that which is not supposed to exist and that which the particular society, you could say the heteronormative society or the cisgender society, wants to push or make go away. Does this mean I should be afraid of like sitting in caves for three days and pushing rocks? Away from a tomb? Am I, am I are you saying that I'm a Christ figure? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it depends on the representation, right? So the representation according to the normative framework, you're you're just an aberration, right? Right. The the transgender person is just an aberration, a contingent aberration that shouldn't exist. But the transgender person would insist on their existence. And when they insist on their existence of not fitting, then they become a Christ figure. It's a different representation. It's a representation that goes against the representation of the normative framework. So in this framework, even using the, the definition that you're using in this framework, an atheist in a lot of places in society would be the Christ figure because a lot of times atheism is just is marginalized. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. It could be. It depends on the representation though because you can embody your, your oppression, right? You have plenty of – I would say maybe this is a controversial statement. Republican women who want to live out the norms of patriarchal culture. So they can be women and they are potential sites of being a Christ figure. But if they embody their oppression, they're just representing patriarchal culture uh, themselves. So they're not really a Christ figure unless they, they challenge that norm and say no. Okay. That's a, yeah. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, Absolutely. So you're saying the uh, character of uh, Jesus in the Bible, whether he existed or, or not, just right. he's a character. Absolutely. Um, made visible the poor and the sick. And yep. so the marginalized. And so it's right to assign the title of Christ, the secular title of Christ to him. Mm -hmm. But yet there are modern day, there are other uh, figures people in the world that reveal things to us and then we could attribute the title of Christ to them? Yeah. Not reveal things so much. It's not so much teachings. They reveal themselves. They reveal themselves as 
as in and of themselves sites of oppression where they say, no, this is not me. I exist. I don't exist according to this representation of what you want me to be. So they in and of themselves are Christ figures despite what they say. Well, what's the difference between a Christ figure and a revelation? Well, it, revelation is just, a, 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 I guess you could say, a formal name for the Christ figure. The Christ figure, him or herself, is revelation. Okay. This is, that sounds still, it's like getting like way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, but in I, the Christian terms, we say, we don't, some liberals say, you know, we want the mind of Christ. You know, we want the faith of Christ. And traditional Christianity says, no. The object of faith is Christ himself. Fair. And the same thing for the, the Christ figure today uh, who you could say resists white supremacy. That person who resists is in and of themselves the Christ figure insofar as they resist. They reject the cultural de- designation according to white supremacy. Okay. Now, uh, <laughs> the title of your new book is called Demythologizing Revelation. Revelation. Uh, what do you hope to be the outcome of publishing this book? Well, I hope it's uh, – Besides I, making you filthy rich. Uh, yes. yes, that's <laughs> what everybody's uh, I'm made. on like 35 <laughs> copies sold, so filthy rich is probably not going to happen. But, uh, I mean, if anything, uh, you know, my commitment is to Boltman. I'm hoping he's been criticized for not having a – uh, a social aspect or a social justice aspect to his theology. So I, I hope my, my work, quote-unquote, fixes that and also fixes his inability, I would say, or the shortcoming in his book to demythologize revelation, but also f- provide a formal justification for liberation theology, which is where my heart lies. Okay. And make the world a better place. Oh, that's, <laughs> we appreciate that. We Ultimately appreciate that. make the world a better place. Well, I... I can see how this would appeal to theologians. Um, what do you think would be the appeal to atheists? Uh, well, I mean, it gives them justification for their atheism, you know. Uh, and in their their encounters with Christians, they can say, well, you know, maybe part of the Christian experience is killing God. Maybe a commitment to Christ, Jesus, entails the death of God. And that's something you should seriously consider. That's what I would say. In the words of Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, God is dead and no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. God okay. persists. <laughs> well, I would, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite songs. Uh, we've only got like 20 seconds left. Do you have any well, final thoughts? Well, my favorite quote by Nietzsche, uh, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. <laughs> of course, you're saying he doesn't remain dead. We have to keep killing him. Unfortunately, yeah. Because our gods apparently keep changing. You know, when I was a Christian, we talked about, you know, this is your god of money is your god. And this, and it sounds kind of like... Yeah, idols. I would say yeah. God in and of God's self is an idol. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk. We'd love for you to join us again next Sunday. And remember, if you miss an episode live, you can always catch the podcast. We're proud to be on the air with Minnesota Atheists, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. The show depends on the generous support of our members, our sponsors, and donors. Please consider supporting the show through the donation link at mnatheist.org. This has been Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Minnesota.